0: We're going to be going through uh, psychosocial factors at work and how they impact worker health today. We'll talk about leading indicators for worker psychological health because they're very important for your psychosocial risk assessment. And we'll be talking about how you can use these tools to implement robust psychological risk management systems within your organisation. As Sarah mentioned, I'll do my best to look at any comments or questions during this. It would be nice if it was interactive uh, on the chat but I'm also very keen to stay on track and keep on time so we've got uh, enough time at the end for some good Q&A. So let's get going. Psychological health at work is a state of well-being where people can uh, cope with the normal stresses of life, where they can contribute productively and fruitfully uh, in their work and in their personal lives. But there are factors that impact mental health, and we can think of these as being both work-related factors Or potentially external factors in people's uh, personal life that can impact them in the workplace. When I talk about psychosocial factors I'm referring to the psychological and social aspects particularly in the work environment environment that we know have an impact on worker health and well-being. So it's things like job design, uh, social interactions, organizational and management contexts that we know impact both worker health and their productivity outcomes. And they can also be referred to as the work-related factors in the workplace. But in general, when I refer to job demands, I'm talking about anything that requires uh, your employee's energy, effort or time to attend to in the workplace. And in general, when talking about job resources, it's what your workers are provided to help them get the job done. And what we know is that across industry and occupation and job tasks, work roles, there are many potential job demands that could occur, but there are these overarching concepts that capture the psychological and the physical efforts underlying any particular role in an organisation. So we can have a look at the mental demands in a workplace, being how hard and fast someone's required to work, and whether or not they have enough time to get that work done. The emotional demands in a workplace involve facing emotionally challenging situations, but also if you're required to monitor or suppress your emotions as they arise. And then there are still physical demands in our workplace. It can be heavy lifting, pushing or pulling, but it also can be, be if you're required to sit or stand for long periods of time. When I refer to psychological demands, I'm referring to those mental and emotional aspects within any particular work role. Then there are other factors in our work environment that we know have an impact on worker health and in particular, mental health. So organisational change is happening rapidly. uh, And I'll give you some information a bit later about why that's occurring so much. And if this isn't managed properly, this becomes uh, a, a demand. Well, any change is in fact a demand while people are going through that change. So even if it's changed towards uh, better systems or safer work practices, through that period of change, it is an additional psychological demand on your workers. Any form of bullying and harassment that takes uh, your employees, energy, effort, and time to attend to is also a demand in a workplace. And then there's work family conflict. So that's whether or not you have uh, quality time outside of your work hours, to attend to your personal life, to be able to main, maintain that work-life balance. When it comes to resources and supports, again, these can occur in so many different ways within any particular workplace, within any particular team within a workplace. But we know there are these overarching concepts that capture the important resources for worker health and well-being. So that includes job control being a component of skill discretion, to what extent you're, meant, you're able to implement your skills, use your skills appropriately, and develop new skills if you desire. Also your decision authority, so your ability to influence how your work is done. Other job resources include rewards. It's not just money, but money matters. In addition to money, it can be appreciation, recognition, or respect. And then there's a recovery component as well. So that's your ability to regain your strength in between work tasks, but also in between work shifts. And in relation to job support, we always see supervisor support as being important. It is always a predictor of health, well-being, and productivity outcomes. So you wanna make sure your supervisors are appropriately qualified and trained and uh, that they're able to be resourced themselves to enact uh, processes that can support their workers' mental health within their team. With co-worker support, that's also important. It's a good resource. But I do get concerned when I see higher levels of co-worker support to compensate for a lack of other resources and support in the work environment because that co-worker support can then change into an additional demand in the workplace. So not all demands necessarily result in stress. Workers can actually uh, feel quite positive and healthy by engaging in meaningful work where they feel they can accomplish their goals. It can be quite good for motivation and growth and actually protective for their mental wellbeing. But it's when we see that uh, their capabilities don't require the job uh, tasks, uh, that they don't match their skills, that the resources aren't adequate to support them in completing their work role. That's when we start to see the harmful physical and psychological responses that we know can then result in uh, illness and injury. And there are these consistent models for worker health and well-being that have been shown over the years across occupation, across industry and across culture. So it's common to the human experience in the workplace. And what we generally see is that for levels of psychological effort, people benefit from greater levels of job control. However, if the job demands are so excessive they can't enact that job control, that can become out of balance. We also see that for levels of energy and effort, appropriate rewards help to maintain that psychological health. And then there's also the demand-induced strain compensation and recovery model, quite a mouthful. But this model told us that we need to match the resources and supports to the job demands. Otherwise they themselves can also become an additional demand if they don't match what the worker needs to get their work done and protect their health at the same time. And don't forget about recovery. And then there's the job job demands resource model. That's probably the most popular model and one of the ones most referred to. So we'll have a look at that in a bit more detail. The reason why we like the JDR is because it incorporates all of those job demands that could potentially exist and all of the job resources that could be provided. And it shows us that they can interact in ways that affect health and motivation that then lead on to your productivity and your well-being outcomes. And the important thing this model taught us is that when it comes to health, the most direct pathway is from job demands. So when you wanna manage worker mental health, you need to, in the first instance, consider those job demands. Job resource can then, help, can then help buffer the impact of those demands on health and are very important for motivation. So it's those interactions that will result in your productivity and well-being outcomes. So in summary, it's job demands that tend to impact worker health in the most direct sense. And then the job resources can help to buffer that impact and improve motivation. We need to make sure our resources and supports are matching the job demands, and we also need to value and allow for priority of recovery. Now, these things seem to be coming up a lot more and appear to be quite important, and there is a reason for that. So first of all, there's a legal responsibility to provide a working environment that is safe without risk to health. And health is defined as being both psychological and physical in nature. The legal obligation also involves eliminating risk to health and safety as far as reasonably practicable. Now, that word practicable is actually quite important because it's not just doing what is practical, it's also what you are able to do. So, for some groups within some organisations, certain things may be a practical way to better manage worker mental health but it may not be something that you're able to do. So in that instance, if you can't eliminate the risks, you need to minimise the potential for harm, again, as far as reasonably practicable. We also know that these factors are predicting uh, mental uh, injury claims, psychological injury claims, and the costs of those claims appear to just be growing. And we know that there is a lot of evidence that these factors Impact worker health and productivity outcomes. So we are seeing these psychosocial factors and psychological job demands increase, especially over the last ten to twenty years. And that's because we've we've got we've become very good at automating the more routine, the more predictable, and the more manual tasks in our work environment. But then what we are left with is interacting. With those automated processes, which leaves us with the more complex, the more unpredictable, and interacting with other humans, which the AI technology hasn't quite perfected yet at this stage. Also, there is movement of communication and information faster than ever before for us to attend to, and a generation generations of knowledge gener- knowledge being generated at a pace never before seen. So that's why we're seeing this increase in cognitive demands in our workplaces. And the ABS data is is very helpful for demonstrating this point. So this shows us that back in 1987, the greatest percent of skill required across the Australian workforce was for routine and manual tasks. Over time, that has been decreasing until about the mid-2000s, where it dropped and what became the greatest percent of skill requirement was for the non-routine and cognitive. So that is now the greatest percent of skill requirement across our Australian workforce. So that's why we're seeing a greater risk and the risk in that area increasing and likely to keep rising. So to ensure that you're fulfilling your due diligence, You're required to keep up to date with knowledge of workforce health and safety matters, which is why you're here today, to understand the hazards and risks associated with your particular organisation's operations, and to ensure that you're doing your best to eliminate or minimise those risks as best as you reasonably, practicably can. So when does a factor become a hazard? Not all job demands result in stress, And most work design management factors within a workplace are not necessarily positive or negative by nature. It's when job demands become excessive and cannot be met, or if resources are inadequate or inappropriate for workers to meet those job demands. That's where we see that same sense of engagement and motivation start turning into exhaustion and over time can lead to illness and injury. So just to be really clear, the psychosocial hazards that could occur in a workplace involve excessive, unreasonable or inappropriate job demands, poorly managed organisational change, any form of bullying and harassment, and lack of sufficient resources and supports. So to summarise the employer responsibilities, cognitive demands are increasing, And so the risks associated with those are also increasing. We know that these particular psychosocial hazards impact both physical and psychological health. So we need to minimise risk of exposure as far as reasonably practicable. And we need to minimise risk of harm if exposure does occur, again, as far as reasonably practicable. So we've talked about factors. We've talked about hazards. Now we're going to talk about risks. Psychosocial risk is the potential that any of those hazards could occur in your work environment at any given time. And if they do occur, the likelihood of harm that could result as an outcome of that hazard. And what we've learned is that these psychological health climates predict the potential for job demands and job resources to occur in a healthy or hazardous way, and the likelihood of harm That could occur if someone is exposed to a psychosocial hazard. So when we measure these climates which are the shared perceptions of the policies, practices and procedures that are there to manage these factors, we can actually predict levels of job demands, levels of job resources and whether or not they're going to be interacting in a way that has that potential harm to worker health and well-being. And we see this climate can exist at An organisational level, and in a large organisation, can exist again at a unit, division and team level as well. So these psychological health climates actually extended the JDR model. When we measure those climates, we can predict the job demands, we can predict whether they're likely to impact health, and we can predict those health outcomes. We can also predict the resources, whether or not they're likely to impact motivation, and productivity outcomes. And the research evidence out there is abundant. Uh, There are studies that show that by measuring these climates, you could predict uh, symptoms for distress, exhaustion and depression, also symptoms for physical health, such as musculoskeletal disorders and cardiovascular disease. It consistently predicts sickness absence and rates of injury claims, also return to work outcomes. In relation to worker behaviour, we see it predict productivity. Uh, We measure that by asking people, how hard and fast are you working compared to how hard and fast you could be working? And it is a consistent predictor of that productivity, as well as creativity and innovation in organisations. Where we say it predicts civility and integrity, that's because there are studies showing that these climates predict corruption and bullying and harassment. And also, I've seen these climbers in a large organisation predict turnover for the next two to three to four years. So when I work with industry, I now work with this indicator model. I wanna measure the lead indicators, because that's going to tell me uh, what factors are contributing to levels of job demands and resources, and whether or not they're going to interact in a positive or negative way on those health and wellbeing outcomes. So this information is important to know the underlying concepts that contribute to levels of job demands and resources. If you're measuring those as well, that's also very helpful information because that's going to give you an indication of impact on health and productivity. So we find these leading indicators are really good to alert when a negative, negative trend is going to happen also, they give the information about the factors in the workplace that have contributed to those health, well-being, and productivity outcomes. They're excellent for targeting any interventions, actions and strategies, because they're going to help you be efficient in creating change. Also, we find that they're the best for evaluating any actions or strategies or uh, risk management systems Because climate is the first thing that will change. Some of those lag outcomes in a large organization can take quite some time to see that change occur. The first thing that will change is your climate. So after implementing uh, systems for risk management control, we can see climate start changing after a few months. And we'll start seeing some of those other indicators changing after a few years. So climate's the first one that's going to tell us if what we're doing is effective and actually working. There is a wide range of studies out there showing that not just these psychosocial climate measures, uh, but also a wide range of lead indicators that are being used by industry can help benefit health, productivity, safety behaviours and outcomes, accidents and injuries, uh, improves that return to work, improves team interactions, creativity and it provides this reputation to attract and obtain and retain quality staff within your organisation. So this is a very detailed slide um, but I used to have these one by one and it was just I keep getting more and more information so I don't have time to go through each of the research studies out there that show us that when we improve climate, we see reductions in job demands, we see reduced perceptions of bullying, uh, better perceptions of resources and engagement, reduced symptoms for job strain and depression. What, one of the studies that really surprised me, I always expected the climate to have a big impact on sickness absence, but it was that prediction for presenteeism that was actually very interesting as an outcome. I didn't realize to what degree these climates were impacting people's productivity outcomes. So when we're in a healthy work environment, we see people taking on average, and this is pre-COVID data, please keep in mind, uh, we were seeing people take on average 6.3 sick days per year. For when they, but as soon as they dropped out of that healthy climate, people would start taking more sick days to try to cope with those workplace factors while managing and maintaining their health. So we started seeing almost double and then double the sick days as that climate was reducing. And there is also a lot of information out there, and I think there's some updated data, I think, from the Productivity Commission as well, about how investing in effective systems to protect worker health, mental health, and promote well-being provides a return on investment on average between two to $4. And for some organisations and industries, it is quite a lot more. So these are some of the tools that I would recommend you go through when you're thinking about how you can integrate a risk assessment within your risk management system. So risk assessment is a tool for your overall risk management system for psychological health. Uh, I'm quite impressed with the information that's now available on the SafeWork websites. It's good to go to the one in your jurisdiction so you can understand how that can be applied within your particular state. But there is some really good information, uh, in particular, the latest code of practice developed by SafeWork New South Wales. It's quite detailed in expectations, responsibilities, and in how you would implement a risk management system within your organisation. I like the Mental Health Commission at Canada. uh, I've been following them for the past 10 years. I think they've been an absolute leader in this area and they're guarding minds at work tool. I put this link in here because this is something that I would go to as a practitioner. It's frequently asked questions from other employers, organisations and practitioners who've attempted to implement risk assessment tools as part of their risk management system. So it has all of these answers about the nuances and if my business is small or if it's a manufacturing or if it's the different resources you would need and if there's barriers and facilitators. So it's a really good question and answer section to go to. And then Australia has actually developed their own similar version of the Guarding Minds at Work tool based on Australian data. So that's available, free to use, the People at Work tool. For your benefit, I'll give you a summary of the pros and cons with my experiences in using those tools. So, uh, as I've already mentioned, I'm a fan of the Guarding Minds tool. Uh, I, I see that they are, they've been updating it regularly ever since they've uh, implemented or provided that tool online. So you know that they're always working on improving it and making sure it reflects the current status of the world that we live in. There's extensive resources involved. Uh, It it has got, and it's freely available with this automated survey and reporting. There are some limitations. Uh, You can't customize or modify, or it's very limited in your ability to do that. And one of the difficulties I have working with this tool is there are so many questions And I find that it encompasses both your risk questions with your hazard identification questions. So there are separate ways that you would want to do risk assessment, looking at the leading indicators that predict outcomes, the factors you need in your work environment to create safe systems versus your hazard identification when an actual hazard is occurring. And my preference is you don't wait for a survey to attend to hazards that are occurring. But that can also be helpful as a double check system to make sure they're being attended to. But having both your risks and hazards surveyed at the same time together is quite a lot of questions. And I think it complicates the process. Similar for the people at work tool, uh, that's been great that it's been normalized for Australian data. And it is a very useful tool, again, with a lot of resources. Still, there are limitations in being able to customise it and modify it for your particular organisation or work team. There are limitations in that uh, the last time I used it, you had to have at least 20 people uh, participating uh, and sometimes that's not achievable for an organisation or for a group within organ- in an organisation. And again, it has a lot of questions where it's got both that risk assessment component with the hazard identification. I started working with psychosocial safety climate because I found it was one of the best for capturing that risk component. So it was capturing those underlying psychological concepts we know to create that sense of psychological safety in a work environment. Uh, that one is a, a very well, uh, lot, very um, proven with a lot of academic research and evidence supporting that it accurately captures that element of risk. It's an excellent research tool. Uh, There's so many publications on it now, and I would still say that's one you would consider if your focus was for conducting research. Um, So you can work with UniSA directly who developed the tool, or you can actually access it through the APA. But again, it's got some of those limitations. Um, And the language is quite um, cumbersome and there isn't opportunity for modification. Also, it's really good at the risk assessment, but it doesn't give you any indication of what hazards you could expect within the environment you're assessing. So we've actually started working with the PRC, the Proactive Reactive Climate for Psychological Health. And we found that that captures both the risk assessment component and that hazard identification. So it gives us indicators for where we think the hazards or what types of hazards are likely to occur in that particular work environment. And it gives us the information about all of the risk um, elements that we need to know about to understand why those hazards are occurring. So we can be really targeted and strategic with our risk management and our controls and our systems. It's modifiable so it can be tailored to suit the language within your organisation. And um, it's currently going through um, additional benchmarking and validation processes. So what we like about the PRC tool is that it took the elements that we could see in these leading indicators in these climate measures, where there would always be a component focusing on prevention of exposure to psychosocial hazards. So when we measure senior management priority, uh, leadership, trust, worker confidence about raising issues about psychological health and workers' uh, perception of their ability to participate appropriately in those systems, we see that's very protective for preventing exposure to psychosocial hazards. But you can't remove them all. So if they do occur, we then measure the communication about managing them responsiveness of the organisation, as well as the managers and leaders, and the collaboration at every level within the organisation to attend to those hazards as they arise, because that's going to reduce the likelihood of harm. So it's very clear about that reasonable, practicable uh, minimisation of exposure, and then very clear about reasonable, practicable uh, reduction of the risk of harm. It also includes some indicators so you know which hazards are then likely to occur for your particular group or across your organisation. And it captures the ones that the data consistently shows are the most important for worker health and wellbeing. So it has 16 items, five are for that proactive climate, five are for the reactive climate, three indicators for job demands and three indicators for those resources. And if you were going to use a risk assessment tool, I recommend you do it as part of a plan where you're going to actually have a strategy for how you're going to use that information when you receive your results. And I will go through that in a moment. So let's let's, um, suggest you've implemented your risk assessment and hopefully the risk assessment tool you've chosen gives you some indication of risk based on your outcomes. For the PRC, what we find is when we've got uh, scores above 75 overall, that that's low risk for worker mental health and wellbeing. When the scores overall start dropping below 75, that's when we start to see an increase in sickness absence and presenteeism. When the scores drop below 50, that's when we start to see the more clinical symptoms for poor psychological health and wellbeing. And for environments where we see scores below 25, if there is no significant change in that environment, over time, there is a very big risk of workers uh, experiencing clinical uh, health issues, both depression And we've even shown it predicts cardiovascular disease over time if nothing changes. So if you're using the PRC or some other similar risk assessment tools, you'll get an overall risk rating. So that's an overall score. That's what you wanna see as an overall group effect in your organization that you're preferably low risk for um, poor health wellbeing and that impact and that harm. Um, But for instance, in this example, this workplace is at medium risk. And with the PRC, we then look at those subdomains that we know are important for creating that overall climate. You might not be able to get each subdomain above 75 all the time. But if you have the other domains working uh, in the way they're intended to and working well, safe systems of work in a very healthy way, then it can be protective and you can still have low risk. In this example, the organisation was very good at being reactive when hazards occurred and provided appropriate resources and supports for people to get their work done and attend to their mental health if they needed to due to work related factors. But where they needed to then focus on and target was their more proactive climate and some particular job demands where there's an indication that that's where hazards would be most likely to occur. We provide this information at a group level, but we also deliver it in a way so that organisations can determine if there are common themes across their teams or their units or their divisions, then they may need to develop strategies at that higher level. But then we break it down at the group level. Uh, The research has shown us that targeting strategies so that teams can interact in those systems to suit their particular needs for their particular workers are the most effective. So we'll give each team a a breakdown to show them where to target their strategies for their risk management systems. It's also really good when we see good outcomes because it lets us know where the strengths are and that we don't need to put further energy, effort or time into those particular factors. In this instance, we would put recommendations together for senior priority and organisational priority for worker psychological health in balance with productivity outcomes. Also, we would uh, recommend a greater sense of participation and opportunity for appropriate participation for workers to interact with the systems in a way that can protect their mental health. And again, for this group, um, there was good results for appropriate workplace behaviour. I'd love to see it at 100, uh, but above 75, we know that it's starting to be low risk for inappropriate workplace behaviour. It doesn't mean that those hazards won't occur. It just means as an overall group effect, it's less likely. And if there are particular, particular individual instances, then there should be systems to attend to those as they arise. But for this group, we would be targeting reasonable workload. How do we manage that to be more effective? And reasonable emotional demands as well. And again, we can only ask what's reasonably practicable. In an organisation, you can't remove all workload and you can't um, necessarily prevent exposure to emotional demands, but you can manage those systems as best you can to minimise harm. So we would provide some general recommendations, uh, things like we'll review your policy practice and procedure, be clear about how that's being implemented, consider areas where you might be able to um, strengthen either the messaging or the implementation or the management to better enhance those factors. And we can even see simple um, strategies to create those safe working systems, like where is the appropriate time and place to raise these issues, to attend to these issues? Are they on the right agendas at the right meetings so that they're given the right value uh, and attention to be better managed, or at least as best you can. I then recommend working with as many of these people listed here uh, as possible per team to determine how those outcomes could be implemented for those particular groups. The data has shown us that when we can get consensus between these particular representatives about the existing factors and how they can best be managed, that we're going to see the best outcomes. When I'm working with those people, I try to bring as many of them together as possible, review their results, so we know what we're going to be targeting. And then I go through this hierarchy of control. I ask them, well, what are the current policies, practices and procedures that are attending to those factors? Some of them might be direct, some of them might be indirect. How are they then being implemented through your various organizational development units? How are we ensuring that your leaders understand and know their roles and responsibilities and how are they being resourced and supported appropriately? What would the impact on job design resources and supports from those systems likely be? How are we monitoring those? And what is the expectation on the worker? The worker has a responsibility to protect their own and their co-worker's mental health. So if all those systems are in place, they can interact within your organisation in a way that they can fulfil their responsibility. But are they aware of their obligation to do that? And are they aware of the systems that exist for them to do that? I then give uh, real examples from organisations that I've previously worked with who've been able to successfully reduce their risk. We tend to find that the strategies come under these particular themes. There's never just one. We usually go for between three and five reasonable, practicable solutions. Uh, Just to provide one brief example for each, because we've got limited time and I want to have some good Q&A soon. So uh, one work group realised they don't actually have an allocation of overtime procedure. Another work group reviewed their policy and realised that they weren't being clear enough about uh, service delivery responsibilities. Uh, Another work group thought about, well, how can we communicate clearer when we get questions about the same um, uh, questions within a workplace? Let's be proactive and have that information more readily available or about the systems, the resources and supports that do exist for either work-related factors or for external factors. Also, where are leaders demonstrating um, their priority Are they, can we have some skip level meetings where someone from higher up can come down and talk about how they expect policy and practice to be implemented? Do we have systems where people are clear about when is the appropriate time to raise issues? I know one group in a call centre came up with a system where if they were on a call with a emotionally challenging situation, they could hold up a card and that could signal to the other people within the room um, that they're going through that. And they could have a supervisor come nearby in case they needed that extra support or just a debrief potentially for a brief moment after the call as well. So we've seen a lot of different strategies because the idea is each group within your organisation is going to need to interact with your policy and practice in a way that, they, that works for them. It's going to need to be somewhat tailored and targeted for their particular group to manage these factors appropriately. And um, we ran this particular case study I'm referring to in this program through both bushfires and the emergence of COVID-19. And gratefully, um, the systems that we implemented were actually beneficial in protecting workers' mental health during those external events. So we had the majority of our groups during that particular case study increase their climate and therefore reduce the risk. And even one of the groups that didn't increase their climate significantly, they said that they would have expected it would have been uh, much lower had they not been part of the program. So learning from our research, we found that there are consistent facilitators and that's the recognition uh, by safety representatives and leaders about this these factors. Even for one group, who weren't able to implement any particular or specific action just due to their sheer workload at the time, their climate actually improved. And when we talked to them about it, they said, having that shared language, that shared understanding, we just started discussing and attending attending to these things as they were arising and that was protective. So it wasn't even a specific strategy, but they did start having a shared language, understanding how to have an approach they started having that consensus between those uh, key representatives. The barriers uh, can be financial restraints, resources are limited. So we really wanna be efficient with the resources we offer and provide, competing priorities. We need to acknowledge that if we're requiring any action or strategy that that itself can be in a, a, an additional demand. So make sure you match some resources and supports uh, to any actions that you're suggesting people implement And if there is a lack of senior management support, we're just not as likely to see those good uh, effective outcomes. So every organisation is unique. You will need to determine psychosocial risk management processes that suit your particular workplace. This can um, come down to things like the organisational size, distribution, the types of factors you're likely to be exposed to, and the existing expertise and resources to implement and maintain a a robust risk management system. We do recommend using tools if you have the resources available to do that. The reason is because I found that while people have a lot of um, good intuition and instincts and intentions, when we have this objective data, I find that we can get that better consensus about recognising these factors and how we're going to go about managing them as best we can. You may require, at least in the first instance, potentially some external consultation or training um, as you're embedding these systems. But in time, it should be something that becomes a process, just like you would for managing physical health and safety. The systems become embedded, and then you're attending to them and maintaining them, conducting regular risk assessment, perhaps, but you shouldn't need um, as heavy an investment as you might need initially to set those systems up. And then I would hope that you would experience a wide range of benefits, uh, that you start seeing your workers <clears throat> more confident to manage their mental health, more confident to support their coworkers' mental health. When you start seeing your leaders use language and um, share in their strategies and their experiences, when you start seeing your higher levels in the organization get really strategic about prioritizing mental health in balance with productivity, because if that becomes out of balance, it actually just affects that presenteeism and and creates additional stresses. And then we would expect to see some really good uh, results for your safety, not just for psychological, but for physical as well. I've actually seen these psychological climates predict injuries, for physical, physical injury claims, as well as psychological injury claims. And you'll improve your uh, reputation to attain, uh, obtain, attract, and to keep your good quality staff. So in conclusion, um, there are a lot of benefits to implementing these processes. And uh, even though there can be some initial investment and time taken, And that can be a little bit of a demand on your HR and workforce health and safety who are probably already experiencing high levels of demands at the moment. If there are appropriate resources and supports to assist your workforce health and safety and your HR teams to be strategic in how you go about using a risk assessment tool, but then using that information in a manner that you can actually create systems that will monitor and manage these factors in 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 an effective way over time, you will see a lot of benefits uh, and hopefully improvements to worker health and your productivity outcomes. So that is the end of the presentation. Thank you for listening and hopefully we can get some questions or
1: some chat uh,
0: and have a nice Q&A. Okay.
1: Um, Tessa, we have one question from Stephen and he says, what percentage of workforce is expected to experience a psychosocial hazard at work per year in Australia? presume this is trending up. Uh,
0: Yeah, it is. Um, Will I start with the good news or not? Psychological demands have been increasing as far as I've been working with the data for the past 10 to 15 years. Um, So that work pressure, that cognitive demand component, and there isn't a hard and fast percentage, because it is different for different individuals, there's an individual factor. So some people might not mind high levels of job demands under conditions of high levels of job control. Other people um, are highly uh, motivated to manage those job demands if they receive appropriate rewards, recognition or respect. Um, But we are seeing the trends increasing, and that was pre-COVID. I expect the data that comes out will show that that's only going further. What has been interesting has been the level of emotional demand. Um, I always knew that there was a, a level of emotional demand in our work environments, but traditionally we always thought of that as the really emotionally challenging work roles and situations. But what we found is that as we've automated all of the easy things, we're left with the more complex, And there is an emotional demand component to every interaction with another human or even with work tasks that you know are going to impact others. So we're actually finding really high levels of emotional demand even amongst our policy groups within our organizations, certainly amongst our legal groups as well. One of the other factors that was concerning was we were seeing bullying and harassment increasing um, again for the past 10 years. So when I first started looking at uh, data across Australia, I believe it was about between the 67 to 7% of the Australian workforce were experiencing uh, bullying and harassment. And that, and that was actually bullying, and it was under a very strict de- definition. It would be that um, ongoing targeted overtime that caused harm version of bullying, and that was about the 67 to 7%. Then I think in the 2014-2015 data, we actually saw it was increased to between 97 to 10%. But I'm being told, and this latest data isn't available yet, that that has come down just a little bit since then in the latest data. So I think there's been greater understanding, greater recognition, greater attention to bullying and harassment, and we are hopefully starting to see a decrease in Australia.
1: All right. Well, there are no more questions at this time. Um, I'm seeing just some on the chat. Should I have a look at the chat? Feel free. (laughs) Mm. I've
0: got um, from Nicole, would would you recommend developing a strategy plan and approaching educating senior leaders? Oh, before starting, this is a good question. Um, Yes. So this information isn't in any uh, standard business courses or executive or board courses, as far as I'm aware, yet within Australia. Um, It is still a little bit new and we've only been really refining it over the last, well, five to 10 years and getting really good data proving what works over these last five years. So we are starting to see micro learnings out there, but certainly as part of my implementation program, I would absolutely have a briefing with executive, where I give um, some of the overview and overarching data and information. We then provide a version that is for some of your senior leaders. And if anybody has read um, ISO 45003's latest standards, they would know that a lot of responsibility comes down onto those um, senior leaders and in fact, middle managers. So you would want to give them uh, a bit more information about their role, their responsibility, understanding, and that there are things that are achievable, uh, modifiable, minor things often that really refine that climate to create that sense of safety. That's a really good readiness before you implement. It's not actually 100% necessary. I have had organizations come just get that risk assessment done. So we do the risk assessment and then we work with their data and their outcomes. And then we use that data to give a brief to the executive give a brief to those leaders. We can actually start developing strategies based on the results. So although I do think it's a really good readiness component, especially if this is very new for your organisation, but for others who already have a bit of language and are already doing quite a few things, they might want to do an assessment to see if what they're doing is working. You can actually just get that baseline data. For me, it's more about using those results effectively. So um, try not to fall in the trap of doing another survey and not being strategic with the outcomes. Before you even do the survey, have that plan. Who's going to get together to review the results? Who's then going to work on what strategies to target the low scores? Um, Reward yourself for when you've got good scores. Remember to focus on the positives. These things we're doing well. So let's not keep putting resources here. This is our weaknesses. This is what we need to target but create that um, consensus if you get that agreement between the different levels. Also, I recommend consulting with your workers, being transparent. Sometimes we've seen climate uh, increase and we've asked workers, what was it that did it? And they said, well, just acknowledgement and um, somebody did something. And then we heard that they were actually taking action based on that information. So that can, um, giving that transparency actually starts creating that sense of security and knowledge that there is going to be attempts to better protect worker mental health or manage work-related or external factors if they do occur. And there's another one in the chat from Peter, senior management prioritises, how do you focus their attention on psychological health? Um, That comes with time. So creating change can often uh, either occur slowly and incrementally, generally what we see, unless there's a shock event, for example, a pandemic. So we don't encourage shock events to occur. So we tend to take the step-by-step process. We just be really strategic um, and, and, and we use that method that we've seen works to start creating that change. What does help is that return on investment. So take that data out of this slide. Also, the fact that we've shown that these methods work. So this was only recently that we were able to use experimental and control groups to really prove with science that there is a strategic method you can use that actually works. But now we've got that evidence, we can start presenting that to the senior executives so that they understand the value. And they will see, they will often, often from my experience, have an instinct or an intuition that these things are occurring, but so far they haven't had an appropriate tool to capture it. They haven't had the objective uh, data in front of them to understand it or the research to prove that there are things that you can do that are reasonable and practicable that can actually benefit productivity. So if we start pulling that information together and presenting that to our senior managements, hopefully we get some priority. And also evaluate. When you implement, if you do a good evaluation, like run the risk assessment again, then you're being effective in saying, I'm not gonna ask for more resources and supports here because that hasn't actually been worked worked very well or beneficial, but we are going to keep with this resource and support because that's what's been working. So then you're actually being uh, more effective with the use of money and time, because you're being more targeted and strategic with how you're doing it. So then they can start seeing that benefit. And then they do start seeing those good outcomes. uh, And then we hopefully get that shift in understanding. Oh, thank you. You're welcome, Nicole. And who in a workplace has the skills to drive psychological health? Oh, well, the ideal people will say everyone. Um, which, you know, generally it's true. Uh, I think that I like thinking about the individual as they've got a responsibility to manage um, uh, their health or at least acknowledge, raise issues as they arise. Um, if there is an individual with some external factors impacting their mental health, and that is impacting uh, in the workplace, then we can potentially provide some resources and supports direct them to any internal resources you have or provide clear processes to help them manage that, again, as best as you reasonably, practicably can, just like with physical health. So I would engage with my workforce health and safety and my HR staff to say, what can we provide someone who's experiencing um, these impacts from something that's external to the organisation? If it's internal, there is a greater responsibility and the regulations are coming, that there are systems to manage and maintain that. But you wanna be clear about what's the level of responsibility at the senior level? What's the level of responsibility? Whose role is it for workforce health and safety? For HR? What can we expect the middle managers to do? They can't resolve all the issues. It is not their responsibility to fix all the systems and processes, but there should be ways that they can report on them and seek access to supports if they need them. So um, in the workplace, I would say that there are those key people who work together and a supervisor has a lot of responsibility because they've got the most direct contact, but they need to be resourced and supported appropriately. They need to be comfortable with the language. They need to feel confidence that if they um, attempt to approach someone and they should be trained in how to do that appropriately, But also they should be aware it's not entirely on them to solve that person's mental health issue, but to take some um, responsibility for the factors, especially the workplace factors that could be contributing. So when I work with an organisation, one of the first things we do is get clear about, well, whose role and responsibility is what? what? What do you want your worker to do? What do you want your supervisors to do? What don't you want them to do? Because I don't want them to get too personal. I want them to respect people's privacy. So be clear about what is appropriate for them to do, not to do. But then there might be someone in workforce health and safety where it's more appropriate for that person to talk about, to to work with the individual for their particular circumstance. So different roles, different responsibilities. And actually, if you can um, review any of the ISO uh, 45003, quite sure I got that right. That actually gives a lot of detailed guidance and information about where those responsibilities um, probably lie within especially a large complex organization. And um, there are good guides out there as well. The New South Wales one will probably give you that information too, to help you with your understanding there. Oh, we've got three minutes. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has any other uh, questions or chat.
1: Um, no, but it's very good feedback, Tessa. Oh, <laughs> I,
0: when I don't get a lot of questions, I assume it all made sense. So no, there is I'll more, ahead but ahead. let me
1: just read the feedback. It says from Carol. She says, "Hi, this has been a really informative session with great content. Thank you." And there is a couple more questions for you. Do you want okay. me to?
0: Oh, uh, we, if if we can get to them in
1: time. Yeah, what are your thoughts on mental health uh, first aiders?
0: good for um especially supervisors and managers to feel comfortable with the language the understanding um the words you use the approach um but i would want to debrief after mental health first aid to understand but then how can it be integrated into the systems within your organization again what's appropriate for your managers to do what resources from hr or workforce health and safety are there um and what is you know reasonable and practicable to expect so very good to raise that confidence um, but you would still need to think about how it's integrated into the systems. And I saw one on workers' compensation, and I want to get I want to get that in as well. So workers' compensation plays an important role. It's a bit of that lag outcome. Um, so it's it's a very important system to have. Um, it, it's going to tell you where the issues are, but it isn't telling you about the factors that can contribute to it. I think that that system needs to keep being worked on and to keep being improved so that we can can get better at regulating these particular hazards and attend to the costs on the organisation, the worker, the health system. Um, So it plays a role and it will continue to play that role. And I think we'll actually be seeing greater regulations. Also, um, some of the people who work in that area are really a great resource for what could we practically do, especially with early intervention, where we're starting to see those symptoms occur. So it, it's got its place within this, but we need to be um, proactive as well and have a balance between both. So we're appropriately proactive and appropriately reactive in supporting worker mental health.
1: Oh, I'm running out of time. Was there any others? There isn't one other question. Is the workers' compensation system able to provide support to this hazard? Oh.
0: That, that was the one I was just reading and
1: attending to there. Yes. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, yes. just for feedback, um, Stephanie said, thank you so much, Dr Bailey. This has been incredibly informative and helpful. And Lisa's excellent presentation. Can I get a copy of the slides, please, for learnings? And Lee, they will come as a link in the email later to the event page, the video on the podcast. And Robin said, excellent. Thank you. That's excellent feedback. Um, thank you. Oh. Uh, Wonderful, and good luck with all of your risk management systems. Yeah, all right. Um, I'll just going to drop some links in here. At the moment, we are running two webinars a week, which is um, sort of kind of to fit them in before the, the sleepy Christmas month. Um, so we had one on yesterday on critical control management, part one of the series, and the link to the recording for that is here and also the the next five webinars that will be on every Wednesday. And then next Thursday, we have got David Proben. He's going to be doing frontline, um, let me see that, uh, shaped supervision, redefining frontline safety leadership. Um, And then the following Thursday, very topical, very controversial as well. Uh, We're having the lawyer, Brian Jackson. He's going to be coming in and discussing whether or what to do about can employees enforce mandatory vaccinations. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I might need to attend that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, our webinars um, limits up, been uplift, um, upgraded from, for up to 1,000. So, <laughs> get everyone in. Good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that's, um, yeah, great. Thanks for coming today, everyone, and thank you so much for presenting. Um, Tessa, I hope we can get you back sometime next year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for attending. Thanks, right. Sarah.
1: See Thanks, you. Sarah. Bye.